Welcome back to your new favorite true crime podcast, Lady Ripper. I'm Sarah, and I'm so excited to be back with you for another episode. I received great feedback last week after my first episode, and I can't wait to bring you more each week. Before I jump back in today's case, I just wanted to follow up on the case from last week with a cool little tidbit of information I got from one of our listeners. Apparently, one of my listeners worked with someone who used to be incarcerated at the same prison, Tori and Brian, our two murderers from last week, are currently housed at. He said that they would constantly be bragging about killing Cassie and that they were super proud of what they had done. So I take back everything I said about Brian being remorseful and trying to find purpose in his sentence. It is apparently all an act to get a lessened sentence. As for Tori and his claims of innocence, well, we all knew that was just BS. So there's a cool little fact for you to add to your knowledge about the murder of Cassie. Brian and Tori are truly just the lowest of all low scumbags and never deserve to be let out. This week, I'm going to be telling you a tragic story about a young family that is very graphic and tough to hear at times. Like always, I will try to keep it clean, but I believe it is important to talk about the things that the family endured during the torturous several hours before they were killed and the callous way they were treated by the killers. This case was historic in Connecticut, not only for the brutality of the killings, but also for the criticism surrounding the police response during the incident. This case was also in the forefront when advocating to keep the death penalty legal in Connecticut. For for today's story, we're going to head over to the Northeast to Cheshire, Connecticut. I have never been to Cheshire, but I have been to Connecticut many times, both for work and because I used to live just outside of Boston. And it seems that Cheshire is a typical, lovely New England town. From what I have read in the book, In the Middle of the Night, by Brian McDonald about the Cheshire home invasion and murders, Cheshire is a small bedroom community that believes in hometown values, church, and loves their local sports teams. The horrifying events that happened that July summer night would shake the Cheshire community to its core. It was July 22nd, 2007, and mom and daughter duo Jennifer Hawk Pettit and Michaela Pettit were making an evening stop at the local stop and shop to grab some groceries for dinner. Michaela loved to cook and was excited to make a pasta dinner for the family. It had been a fun-filled day for the family. First, there had been church in the morning, then Bill Pettit had played golf, and oldest daughter Haley had spent the day at the Cape with some friends. After dinner, the girls watched Army Wives, and Dr. Bill Pettit went to the sunroom to read over some medical papers. Around 11 p.m., Michaela got in bed with Jennifer to read the latest Harry Potter book. Haley went to her room, and Bill fell asleep on the couch in the sunroom. It was another successful ending to a great summer day. Bill and Jennifer met each other in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, where she was a new oncology nurse and he was a third-year medical student at the University of Pittsburgh. Bill said that the first time he met her, he liked her instantly, and he tried to impress her by acting like a know-it-all when it came to taking a young patient's blood pressure. He said it was immediately evident that he had no idea what he was doing and that Jennifer obviously knew what she was doing and showed him the correct technique, making him look like quite the fool. Soon after that initial meeting, they began dating and in 1985, they were married. They soon went on to have Haley in 1989 and Michaela in 1995. 
Jennifer became a head pediatric nurse and Bill a respected endocrinologist. Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1998, but didn't let it slow her down. Haley, wanting to help in any way that she could, created the team Haley's Hope for the annual Connecticut MS Walk. Every year for seven years, Haley would write letters to family and friends and walk in honor of her mother and raised over $55,000 for the fight against MS. Haley was tall and athletic. She excelled in both sports and academics, but was very quiet about her achievements. She grew up going to the University of Connecticut basketball games with her father and aspired to go into medicine just like her parents. In September of 2007, she was going to attend Dartmouth College. Michaela was planning on taking over the fundraiser from Haley and calling it Michaela's Miracle after Haley went to college. She was shy, but loved to hang out with her friends. Her family lovingly called her KK. She loved watching the Food Network and practicing recipes with the family. Michaela spent that summer having sleepovers with friends, giving play makeovers, and spending time at the beach. She sadly would never get the chance to have Michaela's Miracle. That is the Pettit family. They are each at different stages in their lives. Haley on the precipice of adulthood, getting ready to go to college. Michaela on the verge of becoming a teenager. Jennifer living with a progressing and debilitating illness. And Bill, the one to guide them through it all. Why were they the ones to be so cruelly chosen to have their lives cut off? What made them so special? Before we find out the answer to that question, let's go back to the night of July 23rd, 2007. It was about 3 a.m. and Dr. Pettit was asleep on the sunroom couch when suddenly he was awakened to a baseball bat beating down on his head multiple times. The two intruders demanded to know where the safe was in the house, but he said there was no safe. They told him not to panic while holding him at gunpoint and that they just wanted money. Then his wrists and ankles were tied up, and he was left on the couch bound, bleeding, and barely conscious. The intruders made their way upstairs where they found Michaela and Jennifer in bed. Jennifer was tied by her wrists and ankles to the bed, and a pillowcase was put over her head. Michaela was taken to her room where the same was done to her. Haley was found soon after, and the same was also done to her. They told the girls that they only wanted money, and they didn't want to hurt them. With the girls tied up and their faces covered, the intruders went back downstairs to where Bill lay half dead. They forced him down to the basement at gunpoint and tied him to a pole where he drifted in and out of consciousness. The intruders set about to ransack the house looking for any money or anything valuable to steal. When nothing significant was found, the plan immediately changed. They decided that they would take Jennifer to the bank as soon as it opened at 9 a.m. and force her to withdraw $15,000. While they were waiting for the bank to open, one of the intruders drove to a nearby gas station and filled up two plastic containers with gas. Then he took Jennifer to the Bank of America. Jennifer was told not to say a word at the bank about the hostage situation back at the house, and that if she did, they would kill her family. She, however, decided that it was worth the risk and passed a note to the bank teller. The bank teller took the note and gave it to the bank manager who took it into her office and called. My name is Jennifer Pettit. I'm 
evening is Mary Lyons. I'm the banking center manager at Bank of America. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. She's getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told, they will kill the children and the husband. While the bank manager was making this call, Jennifer left the bank, got in the car with the intruder, and headed back to the house. It is very important to note that this first 911 call was made at 9.21 a.m. From here on out, the timeline and order of events will play an integral part in this, not only what happens next, but later on when the family criticizes the police's response. Before we go on and I tell you about the brutal events that are about to happen next, or about what was happening while Jennifer Hogg Pettit was at the bank, I think it is due time that I introduce our two hardened intruders. Stephen Hayes was born May 30th, 1963 in Homestead, Florida. His parents divorced when he was young, and from an early age, his siblings described him as being cunning and calculating. He was a career criminal and went from jail sentence to jail sentence, never being able to stay out for very long. He was a drug addict stuck in a vicious cycle of committing crimes to feed his habit. Hayes was in and out of treatment programs throughout his life, constantly promising parole boards that he was sober or on the road to sobriety. Hayes, on one hand, believed his own lies that he was drug-free, but on the other hand, he was an incredibly hard worker with an excellent talent when it came to cooking. In between jail stints, he had jobs in some of the better kitchens in Connecticut, but eventually his sticky fingers and his drug habit would catch up to him and he would end up back in jail. Next, we have his partner in crime, or actually the brains behind it all, Joshua Kamersarjewski. Kamersarjewski was born on August 10, 1980 in Torrington, Connecticut. His mother was 16, a 16-year-old girl who, after two weeks, put him up for adoption. He was adopted into a strict Christian household but suffered a lot of abuse at their hands, physical, mental, and sexual. His psychologist later goes on to say that he was doomed from the very start. Karma Sarjewski began burglarizing homes at the age of 14 and had a fascination with fire. He burned down an abandoned gas station as a young teenager. He got a self-reported high from breaking in while people were still at home and sleeping. Sometimes he wouldn't even steal anything of value. He would just take something as simple as a photograph or move things around just so they knew someone had been in the house. He was very manipulative like that. He had a little daughter named Jada that he had full custody of and was very protected of her and would often try to use her as an excuse to get shorter jail sentences or to get out on parole. Sadly, it is also reported that Karma Sarjewski raped his sister when she was younger. So it was really no surprise when it when he was accused of doing some of the things we'll talk about later during the home invasion, it was not his first time doing something so disgusting. Now, how did our two criminals come to meet each other, you ask? Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky met in 2006 when they shared a room at a halfway house in Hartford, Connecticut, and worked together in a work release program. In 2007, upon his release from parole, Hayes immediately called Commissar Jeffsky to make some money. Karma Sarjewski was working at a roofing company at the time and got him a job. Soon, though, it became clear that they brought out the worst in each other as they began to plan robberies to bring in a faster income. 
In fact, they even did a practice robbery before the pet at home invasion occurred. Hayes was being faced with eviction at his mother's house and was losing access to her car. And if that happened, he would no longer fulfill the terms of his parole and be sent back to prison. So time was of the essence. The night of the home invasion, Hayes texted Commerce Sarjewski and said, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. When he received no reply, he texted again. We still on? Commissar Jeski replied, yes. Hayes, soon? Commissar Jeski, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Hayes, dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. It had been that evening when Jennifer and Michaela had made their quick grocery run at Stop and Shop when Commissar Jeski had been sitting in the parking lot smoking a cigarette when he saw them. He noticed that they were driving an expensive minivan, and he followed them home. While he was putting his daughter Jada to bed that night, he was making up the plan in his head to break into their house later that night with Hayes. The plan was to burglarize the house, take the family out to the car where they would be tied up, and then burn the house down to destroy any evidence left behind. Both of them would later claim that no one was ever supposed to get hurt. If that was true that they really weren't planning on not hurting anyone, then why did they bring a gun? Zip ties. And why did they start off the invasion by beating Dr. Pettit to a bloody pulp with a Louisville slugger? Things really just don't add up. Now that we know about who is committing the crime, let's go back to the morning of July 23rd. Jennifer and Hayes just left the bank and 911 has been called for the first time. It is approximately 9.21 a.m., and the police have been dispatched to the bank. But due to an unfortunate error, they go to the wrong Bank of America. By the time they get to the right location, they have missed Jennifer and Hayes by two full minutes. The police had Jennifer's name, phone number, and address. But for some reason, they do not try calling her. Within minutes, they send officers to the house and begin to set up a perimeter. While Jennifer and Hayes are at the bank, the nightmare at the house continued. Bill remained unconscious in the basement, and Haley and Michaela were tied up in their beds. This next part is hard to talk about, so I'll just say it quickly. Commissar Jeski sexually assaulted and took obscene pictures of Michaela while Jennifer was at the bank. He later told police that he took pictures to use against Bill if he ever needed to. He allowed Michaela to shower afterwards, supposedly to get rid of any DNA evidence, and then tied her back up. He was a vile and disgusting man to do such a thing to an 11-year-old girl. During this time, Haley tried to escape multiple times but was caught. Commissar Jeski later called her a fighter. It is unknown if Haley was aware of what was happening to her sister during that time. Hayes and Jennifer returned from the bank with the money, and unfortunately, Hayes looks out the window and sees a police officer who is setting up the perimeter. He flies into a rage, throws Jennifer down on the table, and begins to strangle her, ultimately killing her. Then he pulls down her pants and violently rapes her. All while the police are outside of the house doing absolutely nothing. They haven't attempted to gain entry into the home. They haven't tried calling. At this point, they haven't even contacted SWAT to assist. It is at this time that Bill hears Jennifer screaming and wakes up. He manages to get his hands free 
and with his feet still bound together, he hops towards the storm door of the basement and manages to push it open. He hops up the stairs and starts crawling across the yard towards his neighbor's house. All the while, his skull is cracked and bleeding, and he is barely conscious. Dr. Pettit's neighbor happens to be outside and sees him crawling and yelling for help. Immediately, they are surrounded by police officers with guns. Bill starts yelling that the girls are in the house, but it is too late, and the house erupts in flames. During Bill's heroic escape, Hayes and Commissar Jeske are busy dumping gasoline throughout the house. Tragically, they also dump gas directly on the bodies of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela. Haley and Michaela, who were still alive and tied to their beds, sadly died of smoke inhalation. Jennifer's body was burned beyond recognition. Haley had been able to free herself from her restraints, but was only able to make it to the top of the stairs before collapsing. As the flames engulfed the top floor of the house, Hayes and Commerce Sarjewski sprinted out of the front door and made a mad dash for the Pettit's minivan. They barely made it down the street before crashing the car into a roadblock and were intercepted by police. Each man was arrested and taken into custody where they gave full confessions. Now here's where it gets tricky. Ultimately, Hayes and Commissar Jeske were apprehended, but the first 911 call came in at the bank at 9.21 a.m. At 9.57 a.m., flames began to come out of the Pettit house. The police were sent to the bank just minutes after the 911 call and to the house shortly thereafter. A hostage negotiator was paged and called in asking if his services were needed, and he was told he wasn't. SWAT called in and asked that they needed to suit up and, call, and come in, and they were told by dispatch that they would call back if they were needed. After 10 minutes, they decided to show up anyway. There was 33 minutes from the time the police initially arrived at the Pettit house to the time the fire started, and nothing was done except set up a perimeter. In that time, Jennifer was raped and strangled, and Haley and Michaela had gasoline poured on them and lit on fire. If the police had actually done something, would the outcome have changed? Would three lives had been spared? No review has been carried out about the lack of police response in this case, and the police department stands by their officers and commends the job that they did. In the HBO documentary, The Cheshire Murders, they go through the timeline of everything that happened, and the family discusses how upset they are about the whole situation. This lack of police response is one of the reasons this case is such a hot topic. I'm a huge supporter of police and first responders. For a short while, I was a 911 operator. I know how difficult these kind of things can be. This is also why I'm critical of this situation. I have been on the phone with a caller during a home invasion, and I can tell you that the police response during that call was the complete opposite. It was a terrifying ordeal for the homeowners, but the police response was swift and exact. I do believe that in the Pettit situation, they were told by higher-ups not to enter the home so as not to alert Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky of their presence, but we now know that Hayes saw them anyway. I don't think we will ever, ever fully understand why so little was done because they don't want to accept the blame. I in no way want to blame the individual officers that were there, though. I believe they were just following orders. 
the blame has to lie in the leadership of the police force that were calling the shots. Hayes and Homer Sarjewski were each tried separately. Hayes was tried first on September 13, 2010. While on trial, Hayes attempted suicide multiple times, instead when sentenced to death by lethal injection. Death for me will be a welcome relief, and I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those who I have hurt so much. He was given six death sentences and 106 years total for all the crimes he committed that day. Judge John Blue said directly to Hayes, This is a terrible sentence, but is, in truth, a sentence you wrote for yourself in flames. May God have mercy on your soul. Joshua Komarsarjewski's trial began in October of 2001, and he was also sentenced to death by lethal injection. His lawyers tried to argue that Hayes was the criminal mastermind behind it all, and Komarsarjewski had just been there to steal money. He said when convicted, I will never find peace within. My life will be a continuation of the hurt I caused. The clock is now ticking, and I owe a debt I cannot repay. The evidence in both of the trials was so disturbing and so grisly that jurors were offered post-traumatic stress assistance, which was a first in Connecticut state history. Laws in Connecticut have been changed because of the Cheshire murders. Parole standards changed for burglaries that occurred at night and when homeowners were at home, making them a violent offense, even if an encounter or violence did not occur. Home invasion is now a crime that can result in up to a 25-year prison sentence. GPS monitoring systems and unannounced night and work time visits were instituted for those on probation or parole. In 2009, the Connecticut General Assembly sent legislation to abolish the death penalty. However, Governor M. Jody Rell vetoed the bill, citing the Cheshire murders as a primary reason for doing so. The governor said after Hayes was convicted of the murders, the crimes that were committed on that brutal July night were so far out of the range of normal understanding that now, more than three years later, we still find it difficult to accept that they happened in one of our communities. I have long believed that there are certain crimes so heinous, so deprived, that society is best served by imposing the ultimate sanction of the criminal. Stephen Hames stands convicted of such crimes, and today the jury has recommended that he be subject to the death penalty. I agree. In 2010, capital punishment was abolished in a landmark ruling in Connecticut. Unfortunately, in August of 2015, the Connecticut Supreme Court declared that all capital punishment was inconsistent with the state constitution, and Hayes and Kamar Sarjewski's sentences were commuted to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. When Dr. Pettit learned that the men who killed his wife and daughters wouldn't be executed for their crimes, he said, I think when people willingly, wantingly, and without any remorse take else someone else's life, they forfeit their light right to be among us. He also said he believed the court had overstepped its powers and urged it to give greater consideration to the emotional impact, particularly on the victims and to their loved ones, that the death penalty cases generate. Today, Stephen Hayes is in Green State Prison in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, after being transferred as part of an interstate agreement. In 2019, he came out as being transgender and confirmed he was undergoing the process of trans- transitioning to a female. 
I can't help but wonder if it is some kind of ploy to get better prison conditions. Joshua Komarsarjewski is serving his sentence in medium security Manahoy Correctional Institution in Frackville, Pennsylvania. He was also transferred as part of an interstate agreement. He filed an appeal stating that he didn't get a fair trial because the case was not moved out of the area and the publicity was unfairly prejudicial of him. He also claimed that evidence was not disclosed and his prison conditions were too harsh. His appeal was denied 7-0. to zero. Now, if anything good could come out of this tragedy, it would be that it would be the money that has been raised in the girls' names. There have been scholarships and memorials made, and Bill Pettit started the Pettit Family Foundation, Haley's Hope, and Michaela's Miracle Memorial Funds. On January 6, 2008, over 130,000 Luminaria candles were lit in front of thousands of homes across Cheshire and raised over $100,000 for Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Memorial Funds. The Pettit House no longer stands today. It was torn down and made into a beautiful memorial garden. Bill remarried in 2012 to a volunteer from the Pettit Family Foundation, and together they have one son. He is no longer a practicing doctor and currently served as a representative in the Connecticut House of Representatives. So this was a loaded case. It had a home invasion, murder, arson, and sexual assault. Not to mention two death penalty sentences that got reduced to life without parole. And a very poor police response that could have changed the whole outcome of the situation. So... I want you to tell me what you think. I'll tell you what I think. When it comes to the death penalty, I fall into a gray area. I don't necessarily believe in it, but I also do believe in it when some crimes fall into the area where they're so heinous and brutal that they perpetrators do actually deserve it. Um, murder is murder, but some of them are more brutal. And especially in this case, I believe it, it was warranted. Um, not only did they hold them hostage all night, the, the mom and the daughter, they were sexually assaulted. Then they were lit on fire. Um, I think it's a very devastating case. And I, I do think that the death penalty was the appropriate sentence. Um, I, I find it very sad um, for the family and painful that the state of Connecticut abolished the death penalty and retroactively um, commuted the death penalty sentence, um, especially when Dr. Pettit fought so hard for the death sentence for um Commissar Jeffsky and um, Hayes to get that sentence. Um, I, I know that that was a devastating thing for the family um, to have to go through after all the trials um, and appeals uh, to sit through. Um, one good thing that I, I do feel like that happened legally um, was the home invasion law that was put into place. Um 
that now if there is a home invasion, um, you can, when people are at home, they can get sentenced up to 25 years. Um, I think that is amazing. I know that's a very hefty, um, it's a very hefty uh, sentence, but I do feel like that it's appropriate if maybe uh, Commissar Jeske had 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 that sentence, he would have still been, been in prison and not been able to commit that crime. Um, you know, on the same hand, I don't think criminals really go into committing a crime thinking, oh, well, I might not do this because I'm going to get 25 years in prison. I don't think they ever think that because they think they're not going to get caught. But um, I do I do feel like potentially it might have some effect on whether or not people are are going to commit a crime um just since it's such a, a heavy sentence um when it comes to um that that sentencing um if you if you watch the hbo documentary the cheshire murders um it talks about how afterwards um the people in the neighborhood didn't feel safe anymore um they a lot of them got security cameras and alarm systems and it really went from being a nice little quaint town to being on national news uh this this case was headlining everywhere it was just such an awful case um and like i said it gained a lot of notoriety because of the police response because of the death penalty um because of how awful it was um it it really just put cheshire on the map and the community just was never the same. They said that it felt like it was their own personal 9-11. In the book In the Middle of the Night by Brian McDonald, he really gets into interviewing um, Commissar Dresky and gets into his psyche and understanding why he does the things that he does. And he talks about how he liked to break into houses just for the fun of it. And Commissar Jeske, it took me a long time just to learn how to say that name, just FYI. Um, he liked to listen to people breathe. He liked to get into their house. He just for the fun of it, um, just to move things around, to still photographs, to he was just, he was not an ordinary burglar. Sometimes he would steal money, um, steal valuables, but a lot of times he was just being creepy. Um, there's a moment in the book where it talks about he broke into a neighborhood girl's um, house in her bedroom and he just stood over her and watched her sleep and she woke up and she knew who he was and screamed and it wasn't the first time he had done that. He had just gotten caught that time. It, he even talks about how he broke into a house of a state trooper just to prove that he could do it. Um, so he just was doing just all these awful, creepy things. And when once people found out that he was doing it, the neighborhood just never felt, felt the same again. Um, 
he also loved fire as a kid. He lit that that gas station on fire. Um, so it's really no surprise that arson was a part of this crime. Um, I have posted on the Instagram a picture of the house after it was lit on fire, as well as a picture of one of the bedrooms. And the bed is just torched. It is black. Um, so you can only imagine uh, how the poor girls uh, must have looked um just how awful that must have been for them um they also tore down the house uh, dr pettit still owns the property but he tore down the house just because they did not want to have that memory anymore and they built a memorial garden and you can see there's a picture of the memorial garden um on the instagram as well um Going back to the 911 call, though, um, 911, you call when you need an emergency response. And an emergency response means that they react quickly. Um, and, and talking about how they were there for 33 minutes and didn't do anything. They, I know that they didn't want to alert or scare you know, what they knew as the intruders of the house, the ones who wanted the money. But that's why we have hostage negotiators. That's why we have SWAT teams. Um, I feel like it was really irresponsible of them to tell the hostage negotiator that he wasn't needed. Um, why did they tell the hostage negotiator that he wasn't needed? You know, clearly they did not have the situation under control. They were just waiting. What were they waiting for? How long were they going to wait? Um, they also told uh, told SWAT that they weren't needed. And thank goodness that SWAT decided that they were going to come anyway. Um, you know, and it, I just am so curious and I wish that they would say something. I wish that someone would do a review of the actions of the police. Um, so we would have some idea on to what they were thinking and why um, they acted the way that they did. But like I said earlier, I don't think we are ever going to really find out. Um, and there's no way to know if what would have happened if they would have done this, this or this. Um, but it's just it's curious to, to think about why they made the decisions that they made. Um, in that situation. Um, there's a lot more information about this case if you want to dive deeper. Um, once again, there's that HBO documentary called The Cheshire Murders. There's also a People Magazine Investigates episode you can watch on Discovery Plus or the ID channel. Um, there's several books you can read. I read the one called In the Middle of the Night by Brian McDonald. His book really talks about the two killers and their lives in the crime. Um, it doesn't go into the trial, um, but he actually interviewed both of them. So it has a wealth of information if you're curious about the who and the why. Um, obviously, there's a ton more stuff on the internet where you can find about this case since it was such huge news. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed the story. Um, if you have any comments, you know anything um, about this that I didn't talk about, please let me know. Um, I'd love to hear some more about your thoughts. Um, 
I do have some exciting news. Um, we're gonna. St- I'm gonna start doing a midweek sentence called "Ripped from the Headlines." It'll be a short mini episode where I catch you up some tr- on some cr- true crime news happening across the country that you may have missed out on over the week. Um, if you have a great story that happened in your city you think I should include, please let me know. Um, coming up in this week is. A Tinder date turns into a brutal stabbing. Missing Mama 4 found stuffed into a trunk of her car. And a former Food Network star found guilty of murder. Tune in for more details. Also, go ahead and like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Follow me on Instagram at Lady Ripper Podcast or on Twitter at Lady Ripper Pod. See you next week for a brand new episode.